Hello. Come in. I'm Michael Culbert. I'm the director of Cushion in Nirkimi. We are a national network of offices which cater for whatever the needs are of the local former IRA prisoner related issues. In the main, we deal with housing, social issues, family support issues, training, retraining, and mostly nowadays advocacy on behalf of the overall community. The office here in Belfast is the central office. There are other subsidiary offices in Derry, South Armagh, Strabane and different places. My name's Lee Lavis. I'm a former member of a British Army Infantry Regiment. And during my time in that regiment, I did two tours of Northern Ireland, one of six months in Fermanagh between April and November 1992, one of two years in, amongst other places, South Armagh and Nuri from February 1994 to February 1996. I'm not here representing an organisation because indeed there isn't an organisation that specifically facilitates British Army veterans of the Northern Ireland conflict to interact with the post-conflict peace process or process of reconciliation. I find myself sitting here with Michael because as an individual I'm trying to contribute to that reconciliation process by engaging in dialogue with former opposing combatants. By former enemies speaking, I hope that other people witness that, listen to that, engage with that, and it stimulates further conversations that helps the process of reconciliation along. The work which I do primarily is on behalf of my particular community, but also an important part of the work is reaching out and interacting with other organisations in society, which at one stage were the others, in order to assist the building of our peace process, and hopefully that could also assist the promotion of the political process. So that's why we interact quite a lot with Lee and other people who would have been in opposing groups to us. From my perspective, the IRA campaign was a campaign against the British government's interference in the, the world of Ireland. As an Irish Republican, I consider Ireland to be a colony, or have been a colony mostly, of Britain for quite a long period of time. When I explain this situation to visitors from different parts of the world, they seem initially surprised. And then I ask people, let's say, from the United States, so how come you're speaking English? And they get the message. We can't live in the past, but we should recognise what the base problem in Ireland is. And the base problem in Ireland is Britain has an interfering role on the island of Ireland with our political world. As an Irish Republican, I took up arms against that rule in Ireland. Eventually... The IRA moved into ceasefire, and the main reason for that was there looked like a likely agreement coming across, which let's say it's called the Good Friday Agreement. It held up great hopes for the future for long-term changes. It was a good basis for moving forward on the island of Ireland. It allowed for improving relationships within the north, between the north and the south, and between the whole of the island and Britain. The conflict was going to end, the new political structures was going to be held up, there'd be nobody getting killed, there'd be no need to be fighting the British military, our children could be getting raised in peace. It was an era of hope that didn't quite come through, but that was the main reason why we began interacting with the former British military, the people who aligned themselves to the British government and illegal organisations. Those people would belong to two main organisations. One was called the Ulster Defence Association and the other was called the Ulster Volunteer Force. Their enemy was 
Irish Republicanism and its support base. They kill people within our community in order to try and force us to stop our campaign against the British state, replicating activities which South American paramilitary groups were all doing when there was guerrilla warfare on. Nothing new about it, but it was quite horrendous. So we engaged in interactions with those groups, basically to humanise them and for us to be humanised to them. And then we also drew in the former members of the British forces. Our problem wasn't an internal problem. Our problem was the British state representatives. So whilst we needed to speak with the loyalists, we needed to speak with the people who were wearing the British military uniform on behalf of their state. And Lee is one of the representatives of that who holds a pretty open view on what the reasons were for him being here. That's just the background to what I am and where I'm coming from. The fact that I live in Belfast is why I can on, or, or found a way to engage with former opposing combatants. The narrative that internalises the conflict here, that it's bad Catholics and bad Protestants, and if only they got on, there wouldn't be a problem at all, which pretty much absolves the British state from any responsibility. While that has also been applied to the reconciliation process, whereby the only people who need to reconcile themselves with each other are these two warring communities. The problem is, is that leaves out the British state again. In terms of British Army veterans, the non-locally recruited who didn't serve in the, the UDR, the ones from the wider British Army, from England, Scotland, Wales, who were deployed here between 1969 and 2007. It's actually the longest ever military operation carried out by the British Army. Most of them returned to England, Scotland, Wales, and there was no mechanism for them to engage in the process of whatever comes after, which cuts off an important source of where dialogue could bring about new discussions. And I also think, for me personally, and several other veterans who we've managed to bring back across, that there's a cathartic experience to engaging with either the place or the people where you were formerly deployed as a soldier. Throughout late 1994, 95, after the ceasefire, I began to look at the conflict from a more nuanced position. Previously, all the information I got about the conflict in the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland came from the military. Everything I understood about the IRA or my beliefs about the IRA, my beliefs about non-aligned victims from the various communities were all formed from my military experience. Um, I was completely believing of the line that the British Army does good guy and bad guy. It does a white hat and black hat. I'd been subject to rhetoric that we were the good guys facing the gangsters and criminals. Because we weren't deployed into unionist loyalist areas, that was the locally recruited forces, the UDR and the RUC, who would be in those areas. Because we were just in the, the nationalist areas, that means that, of course, that kind of thinking was applied to the IRA. We were aware of the UDA and the UVF, but our mindset towards them, and it, it was an encouraged mindset, was that they're not your problem. They're not in the areas you're going to be patrolling and they don't kill you anyway. A natural extension of that as well is because our enemy, i.e. the IRA, weren't wearing uniforms and they were drawn from a particular community. We tended to think of that whole community as being our enemy. So when the UVF or the UDA killed a member of that community, even when it was denied that they were members of the IRA, we kind of believed that all the nationalists were either in the IRA about to join the IRA or active support as the IRA. 
in August 1994, a ceasefire was uh, announced by the IRA. I was actually in Nuri at the time, carrying out patrols in the Nuri area, which is just adjacent to South Omar, considered quite a rough area for British soldiers. We were kind of encouraged to think that don't drop your guard. And it was almost engendered us in this thought that the IRA were just taking a break. It was a bit of a come on. So we didn't really believe what was happening, but it stretched over time. And as it stretched over time and nothing happened to us while we were out on patrol, there was a slackening of the patrols, a slackening of the tension. There was more time for yourself. So I just started reading. For some reason, I suddenly wanted to learn more of the conflict I'd been involved in. I wouldn't have explained it as such at the time, but I think I realised that this ceasefire was a piece of history and I was involved in a tiny part of it. And as I read more, I suddenly start to realise that things weren't as black and white, that there was a context to actions why people had carried them out, that my former belief that members of the IRA were composed of people who'd woken up one morning and decided that they enjoyed killing and were just psychopaths. The idea that that was true suddenly started falling apart as I read more and more history and gained a greater understanding of seeing the circumstances from a wider view. So I began to shift and became uncomfortable until early 1995. By this time, I'd been transferred to work in the med centre as a medic. And I was chosen for some reason to go on this trip with a disabled club from Nuri, one of the areas that we patrolled frequently. It was to see a Celtic match. And there was a whole gaggle of people from the nationalist Republican community and people of all different shades of belief. And during that weekend, it was the first time I'd ever interacted with people from the community I'd been sent to police. So the first time I've ever met them in a circumstance where I'm not wearing a uniform, carrying out my role as a British soldier and they're not carrying out their role in my head as a supporter of the IRA or someone just about to join the IRA. And over that weekend, those people became human to me and I learned the nuances of different views. I learned what it was like to be stopped for the third time on a road when you're trying to get your kids to school and then your little bit of impatience is immediately interpreted as got to be support for the IRA. And I think that pretty much ended my ability to be a soldier because you have to be able to dehumanise that human being. And after that weekend, there was no way that I could dehumanise their people. You had to give a year's notice to sign off. I gave it in pretty much two weeks after that trip, after a little bit of thought. As to why I landed in Belfast, I joined the army as an escape from humdrum life that held up very few prospects, and I had no qualifications whatsoever. I'd spent this period of time in the army, I think about eight years in the end, And at the end of it, I was still a private. I was in the infantry with the least amount of transferable skills. I still had no qualifications. And I realised that if I returned back to where I was from, nothing had changed for me whatsoever except the date. I was going back to the same life and so on. I'd met a girl in Belfast. I liked her a lot. And I thought, well, the one thing I can change is the environment. And I did. And also, I'd come to like Ireland and both communities. The girl I'd met with, of course, was from a loyalist community. When we were on a two-year tour, the one I did from 94, you were able to go out in off-duty hours. You generally spend a month in Nuri, two weeks leave that you could spend locally or in England, a month in South Omar or wherever else you were needed in the six counties, and then usually had a long weekend that you could stay local or go back home. And during that time, I'd come to like many members of the Loyalist community around this particular girl I met. And after that weekend in Nuri, I realised that actually like the nationalist and dare I say it, Republican community as well for the honesty with which they spoke to me at that time. I was still scared of that community. And I was still very aware of the dangers and completely believed in all of those dangers as being very real. But I ultimately decided that I would stay in Belfast 
I'm moving with this particular girl I've been seeing for a while at this point. From 1996, I moved into a, a small loyalist enclave in South Belfast. When I say enclave, you generally think in Belfast of an enclave being surrounded by the other community. So a nationalist enclave surrounded by unionist loyalist enclave or vice versa. Whereas the little loyalist area I moved into was an area of relatively low economic and social status surrounded by people with a lot of wealth. Uh, so, so it was a... It was a Working class in the middle class area. It's working Belfast. class in the middle to upper class area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Malone Road and Lisbon Road. Yeah. Would, oh, I know where you are. Would, um, there was still a ceasefire on. I think it was about, I think it's four or five months later that that first ceasefire broke and I suddenly found myself sitting in Belfast as a former British soldier. And suddenly for the first time in my life there was a conflict and I didn't have access to a weapon. I can remember that, which remade me scared of people from the Republican community or reinforced the fear I had. The girl I met was, was someone who'd never defined herself in terms of religion and her family were all the same. Although I still wouldn't speak to him about the fact that I'd started to challenge the dominant British army narrative with regard to what had happened and what had been happening in Northern Ireland and the dominant British army narrative as to what happened here in many ways aligns very closely with the, the loyalist narrative with regard to the Nationalist Republican community. So I was living in this community with these doubts about the conflict, but couldn't actually speak to anyone about them. So it was quite a strange period of living in Belfast. I became a scary guard. I can remember it, it frustrated me because I'd had a bit of status, particularly when I used to go home, you know. He's in the army serving in Northern Ireland. There's a bit of reverence that you got. And suddenly I'm standing on the front door of Boots, getting abused by some 14-year-old in a tracksuit. <laughs> um, <laughs> and people are looking at me and say, oh, it's the security guard and all the views that go with that. So that's how I came to Belfast. When Lee was talking there, something occurred to me. A ceasefire doesn't fall off a tree. It gets worked at, it gets planned for, it gets organised, and then it happens. It's the end of the process. I was just wondering, did you fellas ever give consideration to how the ceasefire came about or who ceasefired and who they agreed to ceasefire with? Did it occur to you that the IRA was obviously speaking with your government? Well, you're almost <clears throat> pre-programmed to the army to want the input of what, but not why or how. Ah, okay. It's um, just a fact. It, yeah, it's, it's strange in the, in the military. It's, it's like part of being turned into a soldier is, is, is it's almost like the idea of independent thought is siphoned out of you. It's instant obedience, even more so in the infantry, the bit of the army that does the fighting. We'd heard rumours and things, you know, because the news was speaking about it. We didn't really watch the news. It just beyond somewhere. We didn't really read a lot of newspapers beyond the sports pages of The Sun. We were kind of aware it was coming, but no, it was just announced as a fact. It was only later on when I started reflecting that I started thinking, hold on, how did we get to this point then? Remember, I, I started re-engaging with reading for some reason. And that's where I started to realise that there'd been negotiations to get to this point. But at the time, no. Yeah. It, it was like, when, when you look back, like it was, it was quite betrayed. obvious. Yeah, yeah. You see, from our perspective, this had been going on for about four years. Once again, you have to understand our narrative. Our narrative is that we were engaged in a guerrilla war against a foreign government, full stop, and then everything else flows from that. And you were the manifestation of that government with your long rifle and big black boots. That's the way we viewed you. This is my home. I was born a mile away from here, and I live currently about two miles away in the other direction. 
I was born in West Belfast in an area called Clonard, a street called Bombay Street, actually, which is quite well known. I now live in Andersonstown. I've never moved out of this area. I'm old. The only time I moved out of the area was when the British paratroopers captured me after a situation where I served 16 years in prison. But in prison, we were very proactive politically in development and stuff. So we began a, a process of discussing where our struggle was going. We've always considered our struggle to be a political struggle, but was carried out initially through use of arms. But in the early 1980s, it was quite obvious that there was talking being done between our leadership and the British government. In the early 1980s, the British government made a statement that they were no longer politically and economically, strategically interested in remaining on the island of Ireland. Well, I mean, that was mind-blowing to us. One of the main things that we could not do at one stage was to contemplate ending our war. I mean, we'd lost so many volunteers. We had 25,000 people imprisoned. A lot of people had taken a lot of risks looking after us, holding our weaponry, holding our explosives. So many people were killed. It was almost impossible for us to consider ending without winning until we give it much thought. So in the prisons, we were given a lot of thought and a lot of debate. And it was difficult to get it underway, but it was the beginning of a process because we were the activists, the military activists. Now, there were plenty outside too, but what we didn't know was they were also debating it. I was lucky I got out of prison at the end of 1993, which I didn't know at the time, but which was partially due to a degree of goodwill gestures by the British government and starting to release our life sentence prisoners. But I also engaged as part of the Republican family in discussions within my community, encouraging, I had bought into the concept that we will win this without fighting and we'll just struggle to win it. And that was probably because of my personal development within the prisons and debates within the prison and the ability to construct arguments I learned within the prison. And eventually our community accepted that a cessation probably would be a good idea to see where the political process would go. So it was entered into after a long, long series of debates within the Republican family. We were never told about a ceasefire. We agreed to try out a ceasefire after much debate within our community. It was probably well known within the intelligence community that it was all going on within the Republican communities. So we tried it out and it looked like it was going to work. And then all the blockages and impediments were starting to appear once the British government saw that we were serious about wanting a, a long-term cessation, we then very much got the impression that they didn't, for whatever reason. Some period of time later, the IRA then re-engaged in the conflict and uh, put off the bombs in England, Manchester, London. I wouldn't want to be simplistic about it, but the British government, after it looked like it was prepared to be honourable and negotiate, which it did in 1988, but in uh, that period uh, between 94 and 98, they seemed to think the Republicans were moving into the cessation from a position of weakness. So eventually it was indicated to them that that wasn't quite the situation, that Republicans moved into the cessation to get the war finished <laughs> and were genuine about it. But then another cessation was called and that has held the Good Friday Agreement emerged and it looked pretty good. And to a degree, we're in a much, much better place than we were prior to that cessation in 1988. It's not perfect. There's a peace process, which is working. 
And then there's a political process which currently isn't overly working. But unfortunately, we need the political process up and working so people can feel that they have control over decisions being made about their lives. What I would like to indicate was that when we then began to realise that the negotiations would lead eventually to the release of our prisoners, we had to set up structures to deal with them. Now, in theory, under the United Nations process, there would be a process of DDR. DDR is demilitarization of a situation. Then you have the disarmament in the situation. And then there's the reinsertion of the fighting groups back into their communities. In tandem with that, there's the setting up of political structures which will allow the DDR aspects of it to slot in and then the former fighting groups can then see the process which is going to take place. There are going to be elections, there's going to be new setups, which roughly did take place. The local police force was disbanded, the IUC was disbanded, the locally recruited militia of the British Army was done away with, the Ulster Defence Regiment, new political structures were set up and storming. There was an agreement for a phased release of the political prisoners within several years. That was carried out, but the reinsertion part wasn't carried out. And the reinsertion was allowing us anti-state actors to move back in to meaningful situations within our community, that we could go and get employment, that could be acting as free citizens. That wasn't engaged. But still, in general terms within our communities, we're in a much better place than we were. We're not where we as Republicans want to be, but we're moving towards it and we're quite confident about that. Electorally, part of our reinsertion into our communities was we moved back into our communities as political activists, although not with arms. In the first elections held here after 1998, over half of the Sinn Féin representatives who were voted into our parliament, 14 of them were former IRA prisoners. So in the privacy of the ballot box, people came out and voted for people who they saw as genuinely wanting political movement. And since that, numerous uh, former IRA prisoners have been in the elected positions, either as councillors, members of the local assembly, or even to Westminster, which we don't attend. What we now have, 20 years down the line, since the ending of our conflict, we have Sinn Féin, the party which I support, it's the biggest political party in Ireland. It's quite amazing and growing. The DUP was against the Good Friday Agreement initially. The Good Friday Agreement was actually a paper drawn up between the Social Democrat Labour Party led by John Hume, the SDLP, which has almost now disappeared, and the Ulster Unionist Party. And John Hume, I have to say, he, he was instrumental in bringing about the Good Friday Agreement, along with the American government and Southern government, Bertie O'Hearn and Tony Blair. You know, it was a momentous time. The Ulster Unionist Party, which was the other party, led by David Trimble, that has almost been eclipsed now by the Democratic Unionist Party. So what we have is a total change within nationalism and unionism. The two main parties now were one stage the minority parties. But the DUP, which is the biggest unionist party here, is totally opposed to the basic concept of the Good Friday Agreement. So the difficulties we have is that they, from my perspective, and I'm trying to be reasonably objective here, they just do not want to share power with people from a Republican background. But if we're the elected representatives of our community, they have to. Now, that's the baseline. There are a lot of subsidiary other reasons. The political situation at the moment is on hold. There is no active political structure here within the north of Ireland. But as an Irishman, I want politics based on the island. 
I don't care if it's the partitionist government in Stormont. I want us on the island of Ireland looking after our own affairs. And I know that's a situation with the party I support, Sinn Féin. But we can't go into government with a party which will not recognise the need for equality of citizenship. All aspects of equality of citizenship, be you gay, be you nationalist, be you Republican or be you unionist. So that's the problem we have with the political process. The peace process has held. 20 years down, incidents happening with people who just can't accept the cessation. But in the main, there's no desire within our communities to continue the guerrilla war, which went on for nearly 40 years. Would you agree with that, or? You were saying earlier about how you've always lived in this area. Yeah. I live in an adopted home. And how I think of myself is, I think of myself as an Englishman who lives in Ireland. In terms of the political framework here, where I'm from, you've got Labour and Conservatives, you've got the, the Toffs and the working class, if you like, to put it in the, the simplest terms. So that's how I tend to think about politics. Whereas in Ireland, there's much more of a focus on union or not union. If there was a border to poll tomorrow, I would vote purely on the economic and social arguments put before me because I don't have any fervour for either a united Ireland and I can completely understand why, why Michael does or for Northern Ireland's continued union with England as a loyalist or a unionist person would feel. The peace process, that's the little bit I'm involved in. I think things are working and I think there's very little danger of further conflict except for small outbreaks of people who haven't come to the conclusion that there is no victory possible through any form of violence at this point in time for either side. I'm quite emphatic on the peace process working. In other words, that peace is embedded and that grows and it becomes the norm. And it's very important that people are not getting killed, which will allow the political process hopefully to rectify I actually wanted to move on to talk about, from Lee's perspective, about the former British military and our attempts to build the peace for the degrees of reconciliation. From my perspective, moving our situation out of the local and into the international. In other words, these men were the state representatives here. So we felt a major need as former activists to interact with them and talk with them. And if they can influence their government or influence their politicians, it would be good. Part of that was our very feeble attempts at bringing over some of their men to revisit areas that they were in. We had former SAS, former British paratroopers, former Marines, former infantrymen come over to visit areas that they had served in because they hadn't been given that opportunity by their former employers. We also had them interacting with our personnel in those areas who may or may not have been out in action against them, just to show that we're all human beings. And we think that has helped. It has helped, certainly, our personnel in not seeing those fellas as a blank stereotype Brit. No, they were Englishmen who had joined their army for whatever reasons, and then they just carried out their orders in the main. And that was very important. That allowed a lot of our people and their families to come to terms with what happened. Part of, of what we did is, you were part of it when we brought you together with a small group of ex-servicemen with families from Ardoyne. Oh. And it wasn't smooth at all. The males who had been prisoners and former activists were okay, but some of the women who had suffered and their families had suffered at the hands of some of these men who had served in their areas, 
It wasn't good, but they've waited 30, 40 years to get the opportunity of meeting these men. And I wasn't able to get any more funding to do that, but I would have wanted that in all of our areas for people to see. I brought a former British paratrooper over about five years ago to see a play here. And the play was about a particular activity that his regiment had carried out in one of our areas in Ballamurphy. Ten people shot dead one night in Ballamurphy. And this paratrooper came over to see it. And I had let people know that he was coming to it. It was ferocious. Uh, The people I had not expected at all just couldn't cope with him. But they got that out of them, the sales that night. And then he was able to verbalise to a degree his motivation for being a member of the British paratroopers, carrying out orders. He was 17, 18, I don't know. This man was just told every one of these people are trying to kill you, which was wrong. So those type of things are essential for us Irish to interact with the British troops who had served here for us to feel better about and better understanding of their motivations. But they need it too. But their government isn't providing that. It's quite ridiculous. The former IRA people had to apply for money to get to bring British soldiers over to Ireland. I noticed earlier on you said we were policing. No, you weren't. Soldiers aren't policemen. When, when, I, when, I, when, I, I, when I say policing, yeah. I always want to put inverted yeah, commas. Yeah, I, but I, you I, can't I, do that with I, the... I, I picked up on that. See, soldiers aren't policemen. Soldiers are trained to do one thing. It's, it's, it's probably to kill. That's what they're there for. Police are supposed to keep law and order. But the myth, the language about here, the narrative is very important because the British Army were here on the streets as to us as an occupying army. And the police force was subsidiary to them. But the myth put out was that they're merely there in support of the policing because we were criminal gangs, you see. They couldn't be indicating that the British Army had priority. I didn't even think of it like that, the, the, the choice of language. <laughs> Absolutely right. But I'm not, we, we, I'm we, not whacking you. I'm just no, saying, no, we know, were encouraged yeah, to yeah. think of it. It is the very opposite to what I think. I mean, I was down in um, South Omar. The police weren't allowed to go any further than out of sight of the watchtowers on the base without the accompaniment of a section, we called them a, a multiple, which was made up of four bricks of soldiers, so 12 soldiers. If a policeman or five policemen wanted to go further than 200 feet from their base or 150 feet from their base, they had to have us with them. Patrols up and down in Belfast would have, the great majority of that patrol would have composed members of the British Army. In terms of uh, the different roles as well, I can remember a lot of focus was put on the yellow card the yellow cards were the rules of engagement. They're very ambiguous. It was often ignored, but we were also issued with the often not mentioned blue card for the British soldiers. Never heard of that. Well, almost all of the British soldiers aren't either because we just put them in our notebooks. The blue card was the how to arrest people card. Oh. So we certainly did think of our role not in terms of arresting people, in terms of if we got the opportunity to inflict casualties on the IRA. In general, in South Armour, it didn't work out like that. It worked out the other way around. It certainly felt like a conflict to us, and there's a very odd thing going on here about this idea of policing. The UDR were disbanded and their members got paid off, and the IUC were disbanded and their members got paid off. In a sense, their experience was accepted as a conflict, and that's why they were paid off. Whereas in common with member of the Republican loyalist groups over here, the soldiers who were in the wider British Army who went home, their experience has never 
been accepted as conflict because the dominant narrative in Britain, you're quite right in saying, is that it was a policing action against criminals. There always has been a one narrative about here. One narrative starts with probably something was put into the water mm. about 1969 and us Republicans drank that water, mm. turned into killers. I went into prison as a social worker. That was my occupation. And my wife was a school teacher. And I was quite an ordinary person within the organisation I was a member of. I didn't know anybody who was a mad dog, sort of lunatic with mad eyes. You know, what you see in some films and, and the impression given about us that we didn't go looking to fight anybody. You know, British Army were on our streets and the British government was ruling our country. I'm not saying patriotism is a great thing or nationalism is a great thing, but there has to be a limit in what you tolerate. The British government is a government which has been thrown out of so many countries during from the late 50s to the 1970s, and we weren't immune to that. I mean, we were quite intelligent. We were students at the time, and during the 60s, we were aware of the civil rights movement and general political change coming throughout Europe in the late 60s. You're too young even to remember that, but in the era of the coming coming, coming through into the late 60s and into the early 70s, it was a time of change. And we wanted some of it. Actually, we were primitive in our thinking. And even in the mid-70s, 73, 74, when the Americans were getting turfed out of Vietnam, well, we were going to replicate that with these fellas. Britain had been tossed out of so many of their colonies, and we considered ourselves the last of their colonies. Well, unfortunately, we still are. We tried, and then we came to realise we're probably not going to beat them, but what we're going to do is maybe get a draw and then negotiate with them. I mean realism. So all of those are factors in it, but the dominant narrative about here was, see if Catholics and Protestants could only get on together, fuck it, life would be okay for us, you know. No. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. They're ignoring this factor, which was the British interference in another country. I think ruling one country should be enough for any country. Shouldn't be trying to run another country. So I know it's a bit simplistic. We eventually had to adopt our position from we're getting you out of here tomorrow to it's going to be a long-term struggle and then the fancy to maybe we need to terminate it and then we're going to bid them electorally. You keep saying it's a simplistic way Mm -hmm. but compared to the way that British soldiers thought of the conflict at the time it's highly nuanced. For soldiers at, at the bottom level you are like an automaton. In the army it is this total institution. It's amazing the amount of things that you'll do without really thinking about them, just because that's the way they are or that's the way you've been told to do them. So it makes me laugh when you're speaking about it. It's kind of a simplistic way of thinking about it. I'm thinking, compared to us lot, it sounds like you've political science. I had been a civil servant and I left it in 1973, the civil service, and I went in and got qualified in the social work. I was good at my job. I was a good social worker. And then I'm in charge with killing members of your forces you just had it straightforward. You were a guy with a rifle and boots on in our streets doing your job. For us, this is where we lived, and yet we had a, another life. I remember reading a book by an American woman that talked about the West Belfast. She lived in it for a couple of years. She never saw anything happening, but everything was happening. And she said she lived in an invisible factory. It was a brilliant term. Every, all this was going on, she said. Her eyes just saw people walking about and doing the business and going to work and with prams and get messages. And yet there were bombs coming in, getting made, going out. There were people shooting British soldiers. And she said, it just looked like a normal society she was living in. 
So there was this invisible thing happening all around her, and yet all she saw was people going about their daily business. Well, to a degree, that was us. But it was a false life we were leading. Whereas yours was just straightforward. You were a soldier for 24 hours a day. Well, ours would have been the opposite, wouldn't it? Because we, yeah. we would have seen people who were up to, you nef- were looking for who were up to nefarious things, but they were pushing prams about. Because we're viewing everyone as the enemy, so it's, it's always yeah, like that. I suppose there is that. You know? um, it has so changed. People pushing prams and going to the shops are just pushing prams and going to the shops. The invisible factory has disappeared. Yeah. Now, there's still poverty, there's still bad housing, there's still lack of employment. But the core issues have been eased. And that's why we don't have a re-engagement of the conflict, despite the political process being in the bends. The conditions are no longer here, which will allow for general public support of insurrection. You know, some people will say that there is, and they will try, but they don't have the public support. Therefore, you have a puttering along of minor incidents. Conditions have changed so much here. Life has improved, and people also have this vision, there will be a better future here, because things are changing politically. The British were not going to move to support financially the former activists against them, us the former IRA prisoners on the release. The EU stepped in with peace money to assist with the reinsertion of our people back into the community. They assisted us with funding for provision of trainings, emotional support, all of those things which are necessary. So the EU was excellent to us. But there's more than that. Participation within the European Union gave a degree of confidence. We don't trust the British still, full stop. What we have now is the British government and hack to a local party, which we see is quite bigoted, the DUP. They hold the sway of power in Westminster. We need other guarantors. The one thing which our negotiators were always able to do over the years was draw in international attention to our situation, which was essential. George Mitchell, Clinton. We were able to draw these people in and it gave you international oversight of what was going on here. We're talking about the EU, so we'll talk about the B word, the Brexit situation. There is potential for it to totally undo all the aspects of what the Good Friday Agreement intended. Now, the Good Friday Agreement is an internationally binding agreement, is the cornerstone of our peace process. It gives, for the first time ever, recognition of a person's option to be Irish, living in what we would call the British formula, the state of the North of Ireland. This was quite revolutionary. What's going to happen to that? It's very dangerous. I can't see it leading in any way to a reigniting of a major conflictual situation, but it could give grounds to people to encourage others to oppose basically any change coming about. It's a very dangerous situation. And of course, the most important thing is we didn't vote for it. The Good Friday Agreement gives the option of people living in this six counties to self-declare as Irish or British. Fair. And that, to me, is good enough. What happens to the people who declare Irish with Brexit? We have then this whole discussion about the border. I'm not going to go into it because nobody can tell me what's going to happen. What happens to our elected representatives in Europe if Brexit happens? And it probably is going to happen. What happens to the representation of people who self-declare as Irish in this northern part? Because if they declare as Irish and the majority of the island of Ireland is in the EU, do we have elected representation in the European Parliament? I don't know. To me, it's vital as a tie-in with oversight of what's happening here on the island of Ireland. These are things which nobody can answer us. Now, apart from that, the EU 
has been instrumental in facilitating so many community groups, building up their capacities coming out of our conflict. Do I think for one minute the British government are going to provide that funding for our communities in my area? I don't think so. Do I think the British government are going to provide funding for politicalised prisoners groups, politicalised prisoners who fought against their soldiers? I don't think so. There is a pretty negative vista ahead of us. So Brexit to me is very, very dangerous. I want to keep part of Europe. I like the concept of Europe having oversight. And that's part from me looking at the economic situation and trade situation and that. I'm just looking from my own perspective. The most important was maintain the peace, get our political structures, and the guarantor of that to us was the Good Friday Agreement. I've been engaged with several other communities coming out of conflict, and one of them was the Colombian situation. Colombian FARC, we went to Cuba to give our account of our experiences about the release of the political prisoners, the conditions, what to be looking for, where we went wrong. We couldn't possibly tell them what to do. But there's commonality of experience about what to look for and what are going to be the issues facing the released prisoners coming out. We know that. One of the stories I tell people, even the Colombians, is the experience in Holland. In Holland in the 1970s was a mass outbreak of errant behaviour about a lot of older people. Almost like there was a switch turned on for a couple of years that people were behaving very, very strange. And it was such a phenomenon in Holland that they did uh, research into it and all of the people who were involved in that behaviour are people who had been in the underground. They had never dealt with the war. They're people who had taken part in extraordinary, dangerous and deadly situations. No one knew they were doing it. And the war ended, let's say, on a Monday, and they just stopped doing those things because it went on with their lives. They had not dealt with the trauma that they had been experiencing and hadn't even acknowledged. It's a factor to a degree with our personnel, but we have catered for that because we have employed counselling processes for a couple of decades. But that outbreak in Holland, I tell people, it's coming down to you. It's coming down the line because we have it in Ireland at the moment. People who did not deal with the trauma, not physical trauma, of their life experiences are having to deal with it. And it's coming through in various ways, aberrant behaviour, resorting to influences of alcohol or drugs or physical violence, or even in some cases, wanting to support the return to armed conflict. They can't cope with the peace. A Colombian group came here, yeah. didn't they? There was a general, there were some policemen, some victims of the conflict, but there would have been supporters of the of the government, the state. Yeah. I was asked to come along and talk. I remember it very well because what they seemed most interested in is how I'd arrived at a point where I would sit in the same room as a former opposing combatant, let alone be involved in dialogue, let alone consider, and I think I, I do remember saying that, I consider Michael Laird both a friend and a mentor, someone I've come to get to know well. And that's what they were really interested in because people who've come from the mindset of support of the state or state forces, your mindset is is that if you engage with your former opposing combatant, you've always been taught that they're criminals, that their concerns are illegitimate or made up. If you engage with them, you then legitimise them. When I explained on my part, it was a realisation that events have context and only through understanding the whole situation can you understand why a particular person acted in that way. And that is a wish to try and understand what had happened to avoid it happening again in the future. They were quite taken with that. The general who was in the group 
came and spoke to me for quite a long time after about how I'd arrived at that point. He spoke about, in general, his men's feeling and how he couldn't imagine a point in the future where soldiers who had served under him would be willing to engage. Well, when I was meeting the guerrillas, mm-hmm. the saying the same thing, but from the other side. They found it very difficult to conceptualise that that would be the situation. I told them that it wasn't universal, but there were many former British uh, soldiers who were prepared and wanting to come here. But there are also major sectors of the former British forces who will take nothing to do with us, have very much personalised our conflict with their state, taking it out as our conflict was with them. The person was never the issue with us. It was the the uniform was the issue for us. I think part of that problem with the wider group is that Part of the rhetoric of motivation for soldiers in a conflict is that you were right. You were the good guys. They were the bad guys. And in order to engage with former opposing combatants or people who've been victims of violence committed by members of the state forces, you've got to be open-minded. You've got to accept that things are greyer and not as defined as black and white. Once you do that, you start rejecting that rhetoric of motivation that is so closely linked to your identity as a soldier. I'm of the firm belief is the reason why veterans of a particular conflict are not encouraged to interact with the peace process is that it would involve unpicking them very underpinnings of the rhetoric of motivation for soldiers to serve in any conflict. And the motivations of a soldier yeah. to serve in a conflict is very different from a local when um, I explained, anti-state actor. Yeah. When I explained why I joined the military, it was because there was no mining industry anymore and the breweries were going mechanised, so a person with no qualifications couldn't get a job. I worked as a butcher and hated it. The army was an escape. It was an economic and social escape. That's what I say now. If you'd have asked me at the time, or even I would have turned around and said, I drowned up because I was patriotic and I want to fight fighting wars. No, that's part of the rhetoric of motivation that I'd taken in and it had become part of my identity military training is a process of indoctrination and you also get paid yeah we get paid as well we didn't get paid i understand that completely we would never have thought about that and at the time we would have been taught to believe that members of the ira were creaming it in off the money from their criminal proceeds that's what we were buckets of money i know that now but at the time (laughs) not that's a big deal but it's a factor about motivation Mm. There's a package of reasons that I came to the conclusion of joining the IRA. But when I joined it, it's like being live or dead. You can't be half it, you're in or you're not. I would have joined the IRA shortly after. Well, Bloody Sunday happened in Derry, but it wasn't the only factor. But it was a factor. I came to the conclusion the British government aren't going to bring about much change for killing civil rights marchers. I had a full-time job. I was relatively comfortable compared with other people, but there was no uh, luxury of being a member of the IRA. Although, once again, the narrative was we were gangsters and criminals and obviously up there in accents, stolen money and goods and whatever negative they could think of and send about us. No, there was no reward for being a member of the IRA at all. My income was my full-time day job. My wife was a school teacher. We were relatively comfortable. And then that basically ended and... 1978, when eventually my time had run. Looking forward from the, this anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, what do I want? A greater amount of acknowledgement on the part of the British state as to the British state's involvement in the recent conflict here and the history of conflict here. For the British state to be as open as possible and completely honest, 
about giving access to information that gives people answers, not necessarily justice, but gives them answers in terms of incidents that happened here and how that may have interacted with the impact on their lives or the lives of their loved ones or their community. And also I'd hope that more veterans of the conflict here from the British Army think about coming back to Ireland and engaging with it. I don't say that as a prescriptive thing. I don't think anyone should be made to do anything. But if there's former British soldiers out there who have the mindset to come back, I hope that it gets through to them that there's nothing to be feared of coming back and there's plenty of people who would welcome them as visitors. I think that could be cathartic for them. I also think it could be cathartic for the East-West relations. If you meet someone in uh, England, Scotland or Wales who's been to Northern Ireland, in general it's an ex-British soldier and in general they've never been back since that moment they're here during the conflict. And that's something I'd like to change. From my point of view, I hope we can get the uh, political process up and running to get local government back in place. I don't want British governments dictating my lifestyle here.